Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us, brought to you by Canopy Forum. It's Friday, February 11th, and you're listening to our From the Archives series, where we look back, re-listen, and reconsider past talks, lectures, and speeches given at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. I'm Ethan Anthony, and I've officiated two weddings. And I'm Anna Knudsen, and one time I was at a wedding, and at the reception there was a giant cake, but it was only for the bride and groom, which, like, I thought was rude. It was just for them? Yeah, just for them. How disrespectful. I know. If you haven't guessed already, the lecture we're re-releasing from the archives today is a lecture about marriage given by the one and only Robert Bella. So this lecture is from 2002, titled Marriage, Sacred Institution, or Obsolete Tyranny, which was part of the Curry Lecture Series on Law and Religion at Emory University. For some background on Bella, he is considered one of the most prominent sociologists in the last 100 years, providing commentary not only on religion, but also on culture and morality, among other things. He's mainly known for his work on what's called civil religion, or the idea that religion is a common set of values and sacred things, and so a political body, such as America, can be thought to be religious in some sense. Like how we think of the Constitution as being almost a sacred text. Yeah, exactly. He also co-wrote Habits of the Heart in 1985 with Emory professor Stephen Tipton. The other work of Bella's that's very well known is a huge book called Religion and Human Evolution, which was released in 2011. The actual lecture that we're about to listen to is Bella's response to what he sees as the modern opposition to institutions. He thinks that in modernity, there is this popular idea that institutions are inherently oppressive, or that all of our inherited traditions are unexamined and backwards. Bella disagrees with this, in a Hobbesian state of nature kind of way, he argues that institutions are necessary, or else we will all be dead. What's particularly interesting, though, is the way that Bella argues this. The institution that Bella uses to illustrate his point that institutions are necessary isn't actually the institution of marriage. Instead, he bases his argument on the institution of language, and the difference between what he calls the condensed code versus the elaborated code. The condensed code is positional. Arguments based on the condensed code use established institutional hierarchies, like parent and child or teacher and student. The elaborated code is what floats free of institutions and allows people to critique those institutions. So if there wasn't any institutional code, then for Bella, there wouldn't be any elaborated code either. Because the elaborated code is what we use to critique the condensed code. For Bella, we need condensed codes or else life will be chaos. So basically, for, for Bella, the modern move to favor the elaborated code is pretty self-defeating, or at least problematic. I don't know, I like chaos, so I'm kind of unconvinced. So we've chosen to re-release this lecture because there's currently a movement going on to abolish marriage through private ordering, which will allow individuals to define their relationship without the use of a state-based institution like marriage. Last thing, Bella self-describes himself and his lecture as pretty conservative, but for reasons that will become clear after hearing the lecture, he actually argues for marriage equality and the legalization of gay marriage. That is interesting. It, it sort of adds another layer to this marriage debate. Agreed. But what do you think, listener? Is marriage a structural necessity or a thing of the past? Only one way to find out. We hope you enjoy Robert Bella's lecture, Marriage, Sacred Institution or Obsolete Tyranny. The topic today is marriage, sacred institution, or obsolete tyranny. Even those of us who are not prepared to think of marriage as tyranny 
are probably not entirely happy to think of it as an institution either. As Steve Tipton and I and the other authors of The Good Society pointed out, Americans don't really much like the idea of institutions, and this for two reasons. First, institutions come down from the past, are largely based on, uh, are, are based on largely unexamined traditions and habits, and therefore probably don't really fit our current needs, or so we believe. And second, institutions are oppressive. Uh, at the extreme, one thinks of prisons, mental asylums, and they limit our free individual choice. Actually, this way of thinking about institutions is modern, though it has been around for a while. It is, if I may put it this way, part of the tradition of modernity. I might just say parenthetically that a while back I gave a graduate seminar at Berkeley on tradition. I got an a surprisingly large number of people in the room. I opened the first session by saying, oh, how do you feel about tradition? Universally, I was told by the students, we think it's terrible. I said, did you make that up all by yourself? Or are you part of a tradition of being against tradition? <laughs> so I'm suggesting opposition to institutions is part of the tradition of modernity. One of the earliest thinkers to express the modern criticism of inherited institutions was René Descartes in the 17th century. At the beginning of the second part of one of the founding documents of modernity, Descartes' Discourse on Method, he describes the typical European town of his day. Such a town, he says, is simply a hodgepodge, a jumble of buildings from different eras and different styles and different forms and shapes. The streets on which they are situated are often crooked, narrow, and inconvenient. How much better, says Descartes, if we could just tear the whole thing down and start over, putting up a orderly buildings on straight streets with proper right angles. In other words, Descartes' idea of an ideal town is one not one inherited from the past, but one designed anew with a rational blueprint. For Descartes, the town was a metaphor for our inherited institutions and ways of thought. In the 20th century, the Romanian dictator Ceausescu actually did pull down much of old Bucharest and erect orderly buildings in its place with quite horrifying consequences, I think, to most observers. Uh, anyway, in the same part of the discourse on method, discourse, uh, uh, Descartes immediately goes on to make another uh, remarkable point. He says that he regrets that during the early years of his life, his mind was filled with opinions, stories, and baseless information, entirely unexamined by reason, and he wishes that he might have been born at the age of 20 with his mind uncluttered with so much useless material. I don't even want to think of what kind of a monster an unsocialized infant of 20 might be like. So let me start by saying that although every imaginable criticism of institutions, including the institutions of marriage and the family, has some basis, without institutions, we would not be free, we would be dead. In every aspect of our lives, we depend on the relationships 
that institutions make possible. This is not in the least to say that they are perfect or that they are not in need of continuous reform and improvement, only that doing away with them altogether is a monstrous idea as attested by the actions of those in the 20th century who have tried it, Ceausescu, Paul Pot, though I think some of our rational choice theorists today are in their own way trying to do something quite similar. Aristotle is a philosopher who can help us understand why Descartes' wish to be born at the age of 20 is not a good idea either. For Aristotle, habit is an important starting point. In his ethics, virtue, his fundamental ethical term, is, he says, a habit, in Greek, a hexis, that is a formed state of character which is in control of our emotions. We are judged, therefore, not by our emotions, but by the settled dispositions, the habits which control our emotions. Aristotle draws from this definition a conclusion that may surprise or even offend us. He says that the young are not fit students for ethical philosophy, for they are too apt to be led by their feelings and they have not yet developed the proper habits which would allow them to appreciate ethical reflection. Ethics, as he says, is after all not an exact science and its object is not knowledge but action. So bright young people might well study modern moral philosophy Kant's categorical imperative, for example, or Bentham's greatest good of the greatest number, for these are purely theoretical ideas and the young can be quite good at theory. But little good it would do them ethically, Aristotle says, if they do not already have the habits required for living an ethical life. Of course, Aristotle is quick to add, the matter is not one of chronological age, for there are some who are forever too, quote, young, unquote, to understand ethics and some relatively young people might already have acquired virtuous habits. Still, it is worth considering the fact that Aristotle, who wrote voluminous critical treatises on just about everything and was willing to discourse at great length on all manner of ethical problems, begins not with talk, but with habit, and says in effect that without habit, talk about ethics is worthless. What is shocking to us about this is that Aristotle seems to be overriding individual freedom, of course, our American central value, worse yet, the individual freedom of the young, and insisting in an utterly authoritarian manner that he will not even teach uh, such young people about ethics until they have learned proper habits. Socrates famously questioned whether it is possible to teach virtue. And Aristotle's argument here helps us understand why. Philosophical teaching is, after all, always a matter of discursing, discursive analytical talk. Habit is clearly something else. What is that something else? To understand the difference between these two approaches, I want to turn to Mary Douglas's remarkable book, Natural Symbols, a book I have reread carefully several times in my life, each time with increasing profit. Douglas takes some interesting observations of Basil Bernstein's about London families in the mid-20th century and uses them to construct a general theory of the relation between social control and symbolic codes, a theory which, if you will bear with me, I think sheds a great deal of light on our problem of habit and of the relation of habit to institutions. 
Bernstein noted that there were two rather different forms of family in his sample, and that these two forms differed by class. Working class families used what he called positional control systems and restricted speech codes, and middle class families used personal control systems and elaborated speech codes. Because the word restricted is invidious in a way I think neither Bernstein nor Douglas intends, I will henceforth speak of condensed rather than restricted speech codes in contrast to elaborated ones, and will make this terminological change even when quoting them. Douglas describes the condensed speech code that is generated in the positional family. The child in this family is controlled by the continual building up of a sense of social pattern, of ascribed role categories. If he asks, why must I do this? The answer is in terms of relative position, because I said so, hierarchy. Because you're a boy, sex role. Because children always do, age status. Because you're the oldest, seniority. As he grows, his experience flows into a grid of role categories. Right and wrong are learnt in terms of given structure. He himself is seen only in relation to that structure. That's Douglas. Douglas notes that this pattern can be found in some aristocratic as well as working class families. In any case, what I want to emphasize is that condensed code is based on the taken for grantedness of institutions. That's what it means to call it positional. There is a real social world there, and we understand each other and ourselves only in relation to it. She then describes the other form. This is Douglas again. By contrast, in the family system, which Professor Bernstein calls personal, a fixed pattern of roles is not celebrated, but rather the autonomy and unique value of the individual. When the child asks a question, the mother feels bound to answer it by as full an explanation as she knows. The curiosity of the child is used to increase his verbal control, to elucidate causal relations, to teach him to assess the consequences of his acts. Above all, his behavior is made sensitive to the personal feelings of others by inspecting his own feelings. Why can't I do it? Because your father's feeling worried. Because I've got a headache. How would you like it if you were a dog? Douglas quotes Bernstein to the effect that in the middle class family, the child is being regulated by the feelings of the regulator. Daddy will be pleased, hurt, disappointed, angry, ecstatic if you go on doing this. Control is affected through either the verbal manipulation of feelings or through the establishment of reasons which link the child to his acts, says Douglas. But let me back up a step with an example. A friend of mine was standing waiting for an elevator in his apartment building, overhearing a conversation between a mother and a small child. The child was whining about something or other most persistently, and the mother was calmly and extensively explaining why the child could not have what it wanted. The child persisted with rising whiny tones, and the mother continued to reiterate all the reasons why not. My friend was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with this apparently interminable palaver, when the mother finally said quite firmly and briefly, because I'm the mother and you're the child, that's why. What this mother had done was to shift rather abruptly from the elaborated code to the condensed code. <laughs> this example suggests that Bernstein's two codes are not mutually exclusive and that all of us use both of them at least some of the time. 
Let me use this example to link back the two codes to the idea of institutions. Condensed code is always institutionally rooted. When the mother finally invokes the mother-child relation, she is invoking a whole institutional context, a set of habits, if you will, that requires parents to care for children and children to grow up and flourish under that care. Elaborated code floats free from institutions and is rooted more in the ideas and feelings of individuals. It may usefully be used to criticize institutions, but it can never entirely abandon them, for it takes them for granted as the very basis from which criticism is possible. I would argue for the priority of institutions and the condensed code that expresses them in part because no one ever starts with the elaborated code. All children begin with positional control and the condensed language code because personal control and the elaborated code require skills that no newborn has. The relation between mother and child, or perhaps we should better say between parent and child, is necessarily positional, that is institutional, because highly asymmetrical. An infant needs to be held, cared for, talked or sung to, but cannot be addressed with elaborate appeals to feelings or reasons, at least not for quite a while. In fact, interaction with an infant looks suspiciously like habit or its close relation ritual. Linguists have discovered that in all cultures, parents speak to infants in something they call motherese, a kind of simplified, highly repetitive, sing-song, partly nonsense kind of language one that communicates feeling more than information. Each language has its own version of motherese, to be sure, but the basic characteristics seem to be quite universal. Nonverbal communication with an infant is probably even more important. Eric Erickson suggested that the greeting ceremonial between mother and child, marking the beginning of the infant's day, is the root of all subsequent ritualization. Infants become human because of habitual, non-discursive, verbal and non-verbal interaction with adults, which is in Basil Bernstein's terms necessarily positional in control and condensed in speech code. The function of this kind of interaction is to position children, to give them an identity relative to others, to provide them a social and institutional location. Otherwise, they would not know who they were. So far, I've been trying to insist because of the low esteem we have these days for things like habit and ritual, not to speak of institutions, that positional control and condensed code are rather basic to our humanity and cannot really be dispensed with. So why did we develop personal control and the elaborated code in the first place? In contemporary society, Douglas links them to the division of labor, which differentially impacts working class and middle class families. It is essential, she writes, to realize that the elaborated code is a product of the division of labor. The more highly differentiated the social system, the more specialized the decision-making roles, then the more the pressure for explicit channels of communication concerning a wide range of policies and their consequences. The demands of the industrial system are pressing hard now upon education to produce more and more verbally articulate people who will be promoted to entrepreneurial roles. By inference, the condensed code will be found where these pressures are weakest, that is to say, among people whose jobs are both routine and require less verbal facility. 
Although Douglas finds the social basis for positional control and condensed code in some modern professions, the military, for example, most of the professions that increasingly dominate the higher echelons of our occupational world require people well-versed in personal control and elaborated speech. The symbolic analysts, as Robert Wright characterizes our top professionals, are critical by their very job description. Douglas characterizes them as follows. Here are the people who live by using elaborated speech to review and revise existing categories of thought. To challenge received ideas is their very bread and butter. They, or should I say we, this is still Douglas, after all, Mary Douglas was a great anthropologist and therefore uh, well-versed in elaborated speech. They, or should I say we, practice a professional detachment toward any given pattern of experience. The more boldly and comprehensively they apply their minds to rethinking, the better their chances of professional success. Thus, the value of their radical habit of thought is socially confirmed and reinforced. For with the rise of professional eminence comes the geographical and social mobility that detaches them from their original community. With such validation, they are likely to raise their children in the habit of intellectual challenge and not to impose a positional control pattern. Indeed, she goes on to say, they are likely to prefer personal forms of control and to focus on feelings rather than rules in child rearing. As a result, ideas about morality and the self get detached from the social structure, she says. It is not that children raised in such a milieu lack ethical ideas. Sensitivity to the feelings of others can arouse strong ethical passions when others are observed to be suffering. The problem is, is that without some positional sense of institutional membership and without strong condensed symbols, ethical sensitivities may simply dissipate into good intentions without leading to sustained moral commitments. Douglas is very even-handed in her sense that we need both modes of relating. She affirms, quote, the duty of everyone to preserve their vision from the constraints of the condensed code when judging any social situation. We must recognize that the value of particular social forms can only be judged objectively by the analytic power of the elaborated code, she says. She is well aware that condensed codes in the context of institutional authority can be both authoritarian and unjust. Do it because I said so is an example of condensed code that carries the implication of some, perhaps quite unpleasant, nonverbal sanction that will follow if the recipient of the command rejects it. Except under conditions of extreme emergency, an elaborated request for reasons is certainly justified. Similarly, the condensed statement, little girls don't do that, is open to challenge with respect to the whole taken for granted definitions of gender. These are the kinds of reflection that lead us to presume that personal control and elaborated code are always preferable to the alternative. Yet Douglas warns us against precisely that conclusion. There is no person, she writes, whose life does not need to unfold in a coherent symbolic system. The less organized the way of life, the less articulated the symbolic system may be. But social responsibility is no substitute for symbolic forms and indeed depends upon them. 
When ritualism is openly despised, the philanthropic impulse is in danger of defeating itself. For it is an illusion to suppose that there can be organization without symbolic expression. Those who despise ritual, even at its most magical, are cher cherishing in the name of reason a very irrational concept of communication. That's all Mary Douglas. So where does Douglas leave us, including her? She's not asking us, as some converts to various forms of fundamentalism are, to abandon our personal and elaborated selves and jump back into the positional box. No, she is asking us with all our critical rationality to see that we need both forms of control and both codes. She writes, in the long run, the argument of this book is that the elaborated code challenges, challenges its users to turn round on themselves and inspect their values, to reject some of them and to resolve to cherish positional forms of control and communication wherever these are available. No one would deliberately choose the elaborated code in the personal control system who is aware of the seeds of alienation it contains. But the question remains, in what sense can we, products of personal families and modern educational and occupational systems, deliberately choose, in her words, aspects of positional control and condensed code? I will argue that some dialectic, some complementarity, must be sought, because giving up either alternative would exact too high a price. I think we know the price of going back into the box of some kind of closed traditionalism. Can we explore further the implications of Douglas's warning about trying to live in the elaborated code alone? If we see that trying to live in the elaborated code alone would mean that we would have to make up our lives as we go along, that we could take nothing for granted because we would have no institutional context to tell us where we are, we can begin to see that it is not only undesirable, it is impossible. Douglas's dichotomy may be too stark, for even the citadel of critical reason, the modern university, is an institution with the habits and rituals that institutions always entail. What am I doing right now? Giving a lecture. That's a ritual. One you are so habituated to that you hardly recognize it as a ritual, even though it is a fairly complex one. Last night at dinner, I mentioned that Pierre Bourdieu, who just passed away this week in accepting an appointment at the Collège de France, the most elite academic institution in France, with all his populism and peasant background, was very uneasy about accepting it at all. And his inaugural lecture, in which he finally did end up accepting it, thank you very much, was about the lecture. And it was a lecture against the lecture. It was a deconstruction of the lecture as a form of power. Uh, you a smart guy. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, if you think you just came in here to hear some guy talking, you don't realize that what's happening in this room now has centuries of taken-for-granted understandings behind it. And education, I mean, I'm not saying a lecture is the only form. We know many other forms, but seminars are also ritual forms. 
uh, and couldn't exist if they weren't. But you might say, aren't some institutions in modern society based entirely on elaborated codes? Aren't they purely rational? Economic institutions, for example. Yet in recent years, economists have been rediscovering what was once called institutional economics. The economist Jeffrey Hodgson suggests why institutions are essential in the economy as anywhere else in our social life. He writes, in a world of uncertainty, institutions play a functional role in providing a basis for decision-making, expectation, and belief. Without these, quote, rigidities, unquote, without social routine and habit, he uses the word habit to reproduce them, and without institutionally conditioned conceptual frameworks, an uncertain world would present a chaos of sense data in which it would be impossible for the agent to make sensible decisions and to act. Even in the heart of rational choice economics, not that Hodgson is a rational choice theorist, but nonetheless, that's where rational choice, if it applies anywhere, applies, you still have to have the taken-for-grantedness of institutions or you have chaos. But in economic life, institutions do more than provide a basis for decision-making. One of the most fundamental institutions in the economic realm is contract. Contract provides the trust, the faith, if you will, that the other party will not violate promises just because it is in his interest to do so and that there is legal recourse if he does. A capitalist economy is not based on rational choice alone, but on widely accepted institutions. Ultimately, I would argue, on trust. As Durkheim said, contract finally depends on non-contractual understandings that lie behind it and guarantee it. We saw what happened in Russia when the shock therapy of privatization recommended by American economists produced mafia-style manipulation, not rational capitalism, because the institutional basis for a modern economy did not exist. Above all, no trust. No trust, no rational capitalism. Even though, which is not to say the U.S. is perfect, as we know from picking up the daily paper, that you cannot trust necessarily the balance sheets that you are supposed to be able to trust. Even though I have argued institutions are indispensable in every sphere of our lives, there is a truth not obvious to moderns, especially modern Americans. We have seen Mary Douglas noting that in the modern occupational system, especially its upper echelons where professional expertise and skills of verbal criticism are highly rewarded, institutional loyalties are not only not valued, often they are hardly understood. Since Douglas wrote, the trends she noted have become ever more pervasive. A good recent discussion of these trends is Robert Wethno's book, Loose Connections, whose very title exposes the problem. In America and increasingly in other developed nations, people aren't plugged in very tightly to groups and associations. They may volunteer a few hours a week for a while, but they won't join an organization that will expect their loyalty and commitment for the long haul, or at least they are much more reluctant to than once they were. Even commitment to marriage and family, leave aside job and vocation, are much more fragile, much more dependent on individual mood than they used to be. 
Loose connections is a powerful metaphor, but Wethno puts them, this metaphor of loose connections together with another metaphor that partly explains it. Porous institutions. Porous institutions are ones that don't hold individuals very securely. Porous institutions are ones that leak. In a world of porous institutions, it is hard to have any connections that are not loose. One thinks of the family, whereas in 1960, one in four marriages would fail, today one in two will. And a lot of consequences follow from that. The fastest growing category of households is those with one member, which now amount to 25% of all households. Families, as we know, do not necessarily consist of two parents and their children. Husbands and wives drift in and out, often bringing children from a former marriage with them, resulting in what are called blended families. However successfully families are coping with these conditions, and I have no doubt that many families are very successful, there is always the uncertainty. Will this marriage last? Will my parents divorce? We have heard Mary Douglas urging us to, quote, cherish, unquote, the condensed code and the institutions that make it intelligible wherever they are available. But how can we moderns, immersed as we are in the critical elaborated code, understand such an injunction? Let me try to answer the question by turning to the contemporary philosopher, Alastair McIntyre. In his recent book, Dependent Rational Animals, McIntyre points out that our philosophical tradition, going all the way back to Aristotle, assumes the standpoint of an independent, autonomous, adult male. But the truth of our condition is that we come into the world dependent, we end our days dependent, and are often, more often than we like to admit, dependent all the days of our lives. But dependency is by definition positional. Without institutions, dependency would be a disaster. We have to define ourselves in relation to others because we need them. The elaborated code requires that we see ourselves or pretend to as entirely apart from the world, totally free to pursue our own interests and express our own feelings. What I'm trying to say is that for us to feel at home in the condensed code and appreciate the institutions on which we depend, we would have to give up the illusion of absolute autonomy and recognize that we are related to, even dependent on, others. We are in a world. None of us has the view from nowhere, from outer space. And to imagine so is to imagine that we are God, which is the ultimate category mistake. Let me turn finally to marriage in order to show that, though it can be, as in the case of the Taliban, an obsolete tyranny, it can still, properly understood, be affirmed as a sacred institution. In the traditional view of marriage, husband and wife become one flesh. Indeed, Genesis 2 verse 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And this is reiterated in the New Testament, both in the words of Jesus and of Paul. That is positional control and condensed code with a vengeance, they shall be one flesh. And not surprisingly, moderns find it very hard to take. 
I have been to weddings in Berkeley where husband and wife becoming one flesh has been strongly and explicitly disavowed. In one such ceremony, the man and woman were sent into two different rooms for a moment to symbolize that they are separate people and will continue to be separate after the marriage. And of course, there is a good reason. When people said that man and wife become one flesh, whose flesh did they have in mind? Although actually in the passage in Genesis, the man cleaves to his wife, so we might imagine that it is her flesh that he becomes. But anyway, fair enough. If positional control and condensed code have been used to affirm gender inequality, and who can deny that they have, why not jettison the whole idea of one flesh? Because gender inequality is not all that that ancient symbolism affirms, I would argue. And because we, children of criticism, can reaffirm the institution of marriage critically, disavowing the inequality while affirming the solidarity. The price of giving up the symbolism of one flesh altogether is high. If we do that, we are tempted to believe that leaving a marriage is no different from entering one. We can speak of a starter marriage or a marriage with term limits, humorously, of course, but there's a lot of truth in humor. But upon reflection, if we really want to get married, and the great majority of Americans still do, even many gays who aren't allowed to, then we may not really like the implications of the idea of marriage as an easily broken contract. And here, uh, uh, John Witte's book, towards the end, when he deals with some of contemporary tendencies in uh, marriage, suggests that it's precisely becoming an easily broken contract. It was Hegel, however, who said marriage is not a contractual relationship, on the contrary, though marriage begins in contract, it is precisely a contract to transcend the standpoint of contract. In other words, Hegel is saying marriage is a contract to enter a non-contractual relationship. I'm not saying, and neither was Hegel, that divorce is never justified, but that it is a last resort, because marriage is a solidarity so central, not only to the couple, but to their children, and everyone around them, that it is not likely to be tossed aside. As Mary Douglas has pointed out, strong social solidarity is almost always symbolized by body images. That husband and wife become one flesh is not too strong an image, I believe, for what marriage really is. My insistence on institutions and the condensed code does not at all mean that I oppose reform. As Douglas has argued, inherited institutions need constantly to be monitored with the elaborated code, not so that they can be abandoned, but so that they can be improved. Just because I believe so strongly in marriage, I think today it requires a major reform. It should be extended to include same-sex couples. Why stable, well-institutionalized relations between gay people should threaten marriage more than transient and unstable relations between them is something I've never been able to understand. The argument against gay marriage by the people that I respect most, such as Nicholas Boyle and Stanley Hauerwas, namely that marriage is a productive relationship because it can give rise to children, whereas a gay relationship could only be based on consumption, 
that, it is a, uh, that is, it is a form of recreation, seems to me entirely unconvincing. Gay couples often do want children by artificial insemination if they are women, by adoption if they are men. Heterosexual couples often choose not to have children at all. As in almost every sphere today, nothing can be taken for granted in marriage, straight or, if it were possible, gay. The idea that marriage entails the nurturance of children, which I do believe is essential, an essential marker of marriage, is something which in our world cannot be imposed, but of which people must be persuaded. But there's another basis of marriage that I believe has equal dignity with the fact that married couples can have children. The kind of love and support in a committed relationship that is hard to find anywhere else. The book of Ecclesiastes in its wonderful prose makes my case, even when the reference is not explicitly to marriage. It is better, says Ecclesiastes, that you should be together than one, for they have the advantage of their society. If one fall, he shall be supported by the other. Woe to him that is alone, for when he falleth, he hath none to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they are warm, but how can one be warm alone? Anyone in a long marriage, when the children have left home years ago, knows that the advantage of society, as Ecclesiastes puts it, is at the heart of marriage, important though children and grandchildren, I'm at that point in my life, are, why should we want to deprive same-sex couples of that consolation? I'm not against singleness. I think people who have a calling for singleness, for whom it is a decided choice, that needs to be respected. I don't understand why it has to be imposed. When I was asked to give this talk, I was given a very full plate. I was told that your theme is sex, marriage, and the family in the context of law and religion. Out of this mix, I have chosen to focus on marriage. I haven't said anything about sex, so if you came expecting that, you're disappointed. Uh, I have chosen to focus on marriage and to show what kind of thing marriage is by considering it as an institution. And given the bad reputation of institutions in our society, I've spent most of my time trying to explain what institutions are and how they re relate to other forms of action in our society and how they are indispensable. But it is just in thinking of marriage as an institution that I hope briefly to clarify its relation to law and religion. At first glance, one might think that law is a pure example of elaborated code and that its purpose is to enhance the efficiency of transactions not to undergird institutions. This is, of course, the teaching of Judge Richard Posner and the very influential Law and Economics School, which is an outgrowth of the Chicago School of Economics. But is law really like Ceausescu's Bucharest, which sometimes Posner seems to be sounding like? Or is it like the European towns that Descartes found so problematic? One learns a great deal of critical thinking in law school and must indeed become adept in the elaborated code. But doesn't one also have to learn a lot of condensed code, 
language that lawyers take for granted but lay people scarcely understand? And can we simply dismiss that condensed code as professional mystification, or is it an abbreviated way of referring to centuries-long experience with the reality of legal adjudication? The English law professors who most recently translated Justinian's Institutes give us pause when they write in their introduction. One question to be considered, not of course decisive, but not unimportant either, is how deeply rooted our current ways of thinking and teaching actually are. If it were true in the law schools that, and here they quote a recent author, quote, our basic conceptual apparatus, the fundamental characterizations and divisions which we impose on the phenomena with which we deal do not reflect the values of our own times, but those of the last century, unquote. If that were true, we might well be disposed to view them as contingent and probably mistaken. But they go on to say, however, when the truth is that those same categories of legal thought have been surviving critical onslaughts in different jurisdictions and under different political systems since the time of Justinian in the sixth century and Gaius in the second, we are bound to approach the issue of radical reform at least with some self-doubt. If we look at the opening of Justinian's Institutes, which the translators argue has been of incalculable influence on all Western legal systems, not only continental ones, but common law systems as well, we may discern something else that has largely dropped from modern consciousness, namely that law in all traditional societies has been grounded in religion. The Institutes opens with the words, in nomine domini nostri Jesu Christi in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first paragraph begins in Bergson MacLeod's translation, justice is an unswerving and perpetual determination to acknowledge all men's rights. Learning in the law entails knowledge of God and man and mastery of the difference between justice and injustice. Why marriage and family as institutions and the law in which they are grounded should partake of the sacred, should have something religious about them, is largely unintelligible on the basis of contemporary assumptions and requires an effort of interpretation to understand. According to the presuppositions of modern philosophy and modern common sense, a person is an autonomous entity bounded by the surface of his or her body and relates to others as one sovereign state relates to another which implies, if we know our Hobbes, that they are in a perpetual state of war with one another, absent temporary forms of truce. I think we are beginning to see, with the help of some modern philosophers and social scientists, as well as the testimony of all the great traditions, that this conception of personhood is either completely wrong or seriously one-sided. Ourselves are not atomistic, but relational. We would not even have a self if it were not for our relations to other human beings, to the natural world, and to the reality that underlies the world. Law and religion are two of the most fundamental expressions of that relatedness. This does not mean that they cannot be challenged or that they are not in constant need of reform. It does mean that the idea of abandoning them altogether or the institutions they sustain is a recipe for disaster.
or imagining that we can replace them entirely with rational market decisions. With respect to many spheres of life, the status of women is an important example. We know that uncritical and habitual affirmation of the status quo has often legitimated injustice or worse. Criticism and the elaborated code that makes it possible are absolutely necessary if we are to overcome ancient and modern evils. But criticism has to be criticism of something. Criticism alone cannot provide a basis for life. Rather, criticism like appetite in Shakespeare can become an universal wolf that in the end eats up itself. In 2002, it would be well to realize that our critical elaborated code and our personal freedom, good as they are in themselves, cannot survive without institutions and the beliefs and practices that undergird them. And that concludes the Robert Bella Lecture. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I'm Anna Knudsen. And I'm Ethan Anthony. And if you want to send us cake, send it to the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. That's where we are. That's where we are. And if you'd like Ethan to officiate your wedding, he is licensed in West Virginia and soon to be licensed in Georgia as well. Yep, coming to a wedding near you. Subscribe to Interactions wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on the Campy Forum website. And we will see you all next time. Bye, everybody.